please do take out your Bibles with me now and join me as we go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to open his word to his people this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed come to you now. We come in the name of Jesus and we look to Jesus as you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we want to look to Jesus now because we know that mercy flows through him alone. Father, would you be pleased now to feed your hungry people the truth of your word. And may we be built up and strengthened in the faith that you have given us. Father, would you be pleased to open our blind eyes to see the truth. Open our stopped ears to hear the truth. Open our clouded minds to understand the truth. And would you warm our cold hearts that we could receive your truth and be pleased to make your commandments our happy choice. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in Mark's shortest catechism. Not just his gospel, but his shortest catechism where we are hearing these questions being asked and answered. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And thirdly, how should someone, whether it be a reader of the gospel, a hearer of this gospel, how should we respond to the person and work of Jesus? We are in the second half of Mark's gospel. The first half primarily concentrated on this question, who is Jesus? And the second half is concentrating on the question, what did Jesus come to do? Right in the middle, there's that hinge that consists on one hand of a confession of faith in Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And on the other part of that hinge is this call to discipleship, this call that if anyone would follow Jesus, that they are to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. And Jesus' disciples have been following him to his death. He has said three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that he will suffer, that he will die, that he will be buried, and he will be raised again from the dead. And beginning in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. We are in the last week of his earthly ministry, and as we've seen thus far, there is a lot going on. And there will be a lot going on in our text today as well. Now, have you all heard the expression, so close and yet so far away? I believe a song, a tune comes to mind, but I I think we all have heard that expression in one form or another. Um, Think about this. Wow, that was close. Usually that's said with excitement with gratitude as we just avoided danger. We might have heard this expression, we might have said it ourselves, but I was close. Well, when I used to say that to one of my scoutmasters growing up, every time I tried to tie the knot but didn't quite do it, the time I tried to to do the skill that I was supposed to, 
to be able to master. And, and I said, but I was close. And you know what he would say? I remember it to this day. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That really didn't motivate me at the time, but uh, it's a great expression. Indeed, you that play horseshoes know that, yeah, being close does count. And sometimes uh, throwing a hand grenade, if you've watched the, uh, the World War II movies, you know, you don't have to be so accurate. You can just be close, and it does it. Well, think about sports. Think about the ball that gets almost to the goal line. It's close, but it's not in the end zone. What about the basket? That the basketball that hits the rim and bounces around. I mean, it is close, but it doesn't fall through the hoop. What about uh, the baseball, that third strike? He was so close to knocking it out of Great American Ballpark, which is a great part for home runs because it's a short field, as we know. So close, but strike three, and you're out. Well, our text today ends with a curious, somewhat unexpected statement from Jesus. Look with me at verse 34 of chapter 12. You are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you are close to the kingdom of God. Well, why would Jesus tell this scribe that we will see here in a moment that he was not far from the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus tell this scribe that he was close, but not yet in the kingdom of God? Well, before we look at our text specifically, I want us to think about the kingdom of God so far in Mark. You know, in Mark, that expression shows up 14 times. Here in Matthew, it's five times. In Luke, it's 32 times. And in John's gospel, it's twice. And today, in our text, we're at the 12th use of the expression, the term kingdom of God. Well, think with me back to the first chapter. Jesus is on the scene of his public ministry, and he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In chapter 4, when he's beginning to use parables, he says this, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables. Later in that chapter 4, he says, The kingdom of God is, if, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Because Jesus is trying to, as it were, describe the indescribable. He continues, With what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like, and then he goes on to provide a comparison. In chapter 9 are these striking words. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. In chapter 10, he says this to his disciples, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then turn with me back to chapter 10, verses 23 through 27. 
We covered this a few weeks ago, but hear these words again. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, and notice without qualification here, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Well, after that expression, the next time this this, these three words, kingdom of God, show up is here in chapter 12, verse 34. Now to answer the question that I've already asked, why would Jesus tell this scribe that he was not far from the kingdom of God? We're going to have to unpack the answer Jesus gives to the scribe's question as to which commandment is the most important of all. And in doing so, we're going to explore the command to love the failure to love, and finally, the power to love. Join with me now as I read our text, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that would be Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment? is the most important of all. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's look first at the command to love. Notice the scribe's approach to Jesus. It's it's unlike the previous approaches that, that the religious leaders came to trick Jesus, to trap him, and to ultimately destroy Jesus. Here we see what appears to be a sincere question he's asking. I mean, aren't we all asking this kind of a question? You know, uh, hey, mom and dad, I've got this list of chores. Which one do I have to do? Which is the most important? You talk to your boss and you say, hey, this week is really demanding. Which is the most important task? It's a question we, we all ask. And basically... It boils down to this, this scribe, this learned teacher, this this man who is studying God's word. He 
he asked this, what is the essence of biblical faith and life? If you had to boil it down to one, what is it that we are to do? Because the very question of what is the most important commandment, what are we supposed to do? Did you all know that, of course, there's 10 commandments, right? Yeah, those of us in our class, we've been looking at the 10 commandments. But in Jewish life and law, actually there were 613 laws. There were 365 thou shalt nots and 248 thou shalt. So the nots, it looks like outweighed the not nots. Um, 613 laws. And so it's a reasonable question. Yes, you've got the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. But out of all of that, Jesus, which is the most absolute important one? Those of you who have studied to get your driver's license know that there are a lot of traffic laws, right? Some of which you faithfully obey and probably others that you don't. But if you had to guess, what would probably be the biggest, the most important, the essential traffic law? I'd say it has to do with this. Driving on the wrong side of the road. Because you can obey the speed limit. You can have your seatbelt on. But you can be on the wrong side of the road. You can be going up the one-way street and be in big trouble. That's what this scribe is asking. And Jesus, to this sincere question, gives a rather straightforward answer. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18, which we heard read earlier. But Jesus is the first to connect and fuse them together, to bring the two and make them one. It's almost like a marriage. The two shall become one. There are three implications to, to the fact that Jesus is bringing love for God and love for neighbor together. First, Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, love for God and love for neighbor. Secondly, Jesus is emphasizing that love for God and love of neighbor are inseparable. They're distinct, but inseparable. Well, why? Because man, remember, is made in the image of God. An aspect of loving man made in the image of God is, of course, loving the, the true reality. The God, the uncreated God. If in isolation and not joined together, love for God can go off into some kind of religious hedonism. Where you're just thinking about love for God to the exclusion of love for man. And yet, if, of course, you concentrate only on love of man, you, you go off into some ditch of secular humanism where man is the measure of all things and God is taken out of the equation and picture. Third, Jesus is highlighting that this is radical love. To the root is what radical means. The Bible assumes... And takes for granted that we act in our own self-interest. Love of self is used as the standard of love for others. Not because it is good, 
but because as sinners we all possess an endless supply of self-love and self-concern. My friends, this verse, to love our neighbor as ourselves, has been used time and again to justify self-love. No, the Bible assumes that with the fall of man comes self-love. And even somebody who doesn't think highly of themselves, even somebody who has a low self-opinion, somebody who doesn't want to hold their head up but just walks around going, woe is me, guess who they are in love with? Themselves. This is not a call for self-esteem. Sinners have self-esteem. Remember how Jesus calls people to deny themselves? To take up their crosses and follows him. Well, notice that after Jesus provides this answer, this straightforward answer, the scribe makes an appraisal of Jesus' answer. He affirms the answer that Jesus gives, but he includes a significant addition at the end of verse 33. And he says there, remember, is much more. Loving God and loving neighbor is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, this should come as somewhat of a shock. I mean, are you kidding? Look at the book of Leviticus. Look at some of these other books. If there's anything but sacrifice, temple worship, Exodus, setting up the tabernacle, the building of the temple, and yet he recognizes He sees what others are failing to see, that temple rituals are empty if not accompanied by a love from the heart for God and neighbor. This man knows his scriptures. He gives an appraisal. But you know what? How he judges Jesus is not that important. How we judge God is not important that important. How many of you have friends and neighbors and relatives and maybe people in a Bible study say something like this? Well, the God I worship wouldn't do this. Well, the God I believe in would never do that. Or the God I think about would always do this. God doesn't sit in judgment of us. But we, rather, from beginning to end of Scripture, we see that we sit in judgment from God. Because how He judges us is of supreme importance. And we will see that in the evaluation that Jesus makes of the scribe. You notice His evaluation is amazingly authoritative. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And it's probably somewhat intentionally ambiguous. Why does Jesus commend the scribe? Well, not because he has kept the two great commandments, but because he knows that they are the standard by which he will be judged. And that religion cannot make up for keeping them. That's that's why he makes that comment about sacrifices and offerings. Well, did the scribe go home in deep thought or not? We are left to wonder, to think. 
we see that the narrative account ends with this statement from Mark. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So I believe that if we were there, that statement of Jesus would have stopped us all in our tracks. No one dared to ask him any more questions. However, we are going to ask a couple of questions having to do with this encounter that Jesus had with this scribe. And these two questions may help us understand why Jesus said to the scribe that he was not far from the kingdom of God. The failure to love. Let me ask you this. Where is the scribe's confession to Jesus acknowledging his failure to love? His failure to love God, his failure to love his neighbor. You know, it's interesting. In this discussion, it's like everybody wants to have the last word, right? He asks a question. Jesus answers. He makes an appraisal. Jesus makes an evaluation. And then with that evaluation, no more questions. But why didn't he ask about his failure to love God and his neighbor? Look back with me at the commandment. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Um, Friends, loving God this way is not a hobby. It's not a pastime. It's not a part-time job. It's not something you do when you can get around to doing it when everything else is done. Remember Jesus and the rich young man asking this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The claim of the, uh, in the great commandment is an absolute command. It requires perfect devotion and loyalty. Remember Jesus' encounter? He lists all these commandments and the, and the uh, rich young man said, all these I have kept. And yet Jesus knew his heart and went to the heart. And the man went away sad. And Jesus, as we know, didn't chase after him. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus says with man is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus is teaching his disciples that God's law here is an impossible standard for man to reach so that we see that it's going to take a miracle to save us. Here in chapter 12, he is teaching that this is nevertheless the standard by which we, were all, we will all be judged. And here, as the scribe makes clear, the biblical standard is not religious ritual but rather it's love for God and for neighbor. In his commentary on this passage, Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Jesus' answer underlined the fact that any man's attempt to measure himself against the law for his own reassurance is bound to lead to disaster because the very first law requires comprehensive, universal undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being and it carries with it a clear implication we are to love our neighbors as ourselves in other words Jesus's answer emphasized the fact that God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives 
all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Here, the failure to love God, which the scribe did not confess, is the true nature of sin. Remember David's confession in Psalm 51. David had, as we've been seeing and studying the commandments, he he broke a lot of them. Theft, lying, adultery, murder. And yet, what does he say in Psalm 51, 4? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized that all the sins against neighbor, while necessary to repent and to seek forgiveness and uh, reconciliation and all that, he knew that at fundamental was his relationship with the Lord. And when he was sinning against the Lord, he was not loving the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his magnificent work, uh, Spiritual Depression, writes these words. My test is a positive one. Do I know God? Is Jesus Christ real to me? I am not asking whether you know things about him, but do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, the essence of your greatest joy? He is meant to be. He made man in such a way that there was to be the position that man might dwell in communion with God and enjoy God and walk with God. You and I are meant to be like that. And if we are not like that, it is sin. That is the essence of sin. We have no right not to be like that. That is sin of the deepest and worst type. The essence of all sin, in other words, is that we do not live entirely to the glory of God. Of course, by committing particular sins, we aggravate our guilt before God, but you can be innocent of all gross sins and yet be guilty of this terrible thing, of being satisfied with your life, of having pride in your achievements, and of looking down on others and feeling that you are better than others. There is nothing worse than that because you are saying to yourself that you are somehow nearer to God than they are. And yet the whole time, you are not. What is Jesus teaching? To see that true religion is primarily a matter of the heart which works itself out in action. is the beginning of recognizing the need for forgiveness and the need for a changed heart. The scribe recognized Jesus as a great teacher. Notice how he addresses him. In his evaluation, his appraisal. You are right, teacher. More was needed than a recognition of Jesus as a teacher. He needed to come to see that Jesus was also the one and only Savior of those who realized that they could not keep the law. Therefore, what the scribe needed... Was this not someone to address as teacher, but someone to address as Savior? 
Now, recognition of sin and failing to obey is not the only thing missing from our text. What is also missing is a question having to do with once forgiven, where do you get the the power to obey? Where do you get the power to love? Where do you get a new desire and a new ability? Well, where is the scribe's question to Jesus asking where to get the power to love? As this undisputed, most important commandment of all required. Well, you heard it read earlier in 1 John 4. We love. We love God. And the text opens itself up to the question, we love God and our neighbor because he first loved us. We read earlier, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 7, it's amazing. While we were, ready for this, still weak, still sinners, and enemies, what did Christ do? He died for us. In Ephesians 2, we read, but God, being rich in mercy, ready for this, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Most of us can sing this song, this hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We all recognize it. And the hymn should continue. Love so amazing, so divine, provides what is needed to meet that all-encompassing demand. Although I think I have to work on the lyrics a bit. But you get the idea. It's not only love so amazing and so divine that, that requires things of us. It is a love so amazing, so divine that provides for us. In the law, we see the command to love. In sin, we see the failure to love. And in the gospel, we see the power to love. The way our text ends with Jesus' curious statement that the scribe is not far from the kingdom of God calls us to think, to ponder, and to consider. Well, back to the expression, so close and yet so far away. When it comes to the kingdom of God, even getting close to the kingdom of God has as its final outcome the same thing as being far away. You know, whether it's an air ball or it hits the back of the rim, no points. And what is that outcome? That is being on the outside and not on the inside. This text cannot but ask us to ask ourselves this question, where are we right now? Are we far away from the kingdom of God? Are we close to the kingdom of God? Or by God's grace, are you in the kingdom of God? Remember, if it was possible, perfect obedience to the law of God would be the way in. Paul makes that clear in Romans. However, as it stands We all know that it takes a miracle to get on the inside. 
Most of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Do you remember how it ends? It ends with this statement. Then I saw that there was a way to hell from the gate of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. So I awoke and behold, it was a dream. So close and yet so far away. Remember going from a book to the Bible. Remember the thief on the cross. Oh yes, we love to think about the dying thief who confessed his sin and faith in Jesus. And as Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely amazing. But what about the other man? So close to Jesus. So close. And yet so far away. One Theologian has said this, one thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only one so that no sinner might presume. So close and yet so far away. To be not far from the kingdom of God is, as we see in our text, to know God's standards. That's good. But remember, even the demons know the truth. They got the A in theology. Have you ever thought about the demons, the the spirits that are enemies of God? They are Trinitarian. They hate God the Father. They hate God the Son. And they hate God the Holy Spirit. Their Trinitarian theology is accurate as far as it goes. To enter in and to be in the kingdom of God is to, to realize you fall short of God's standards, to believe in Jesus and to ask him to forgive you. Remember Mark 1, 14 and 15, the kingdom of God is at hand because I, Jesus is saying, I'm at hand, I'm here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, let's end with a reminder of this good news of the gospel because in the gospel, God gives what he demands. Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not in our obedience do we become the righteousness of God, but in Christ, in faith union with him. And finally are these words from Paul in Romans 8. We hear this often as an assurance of pardon, but I want to go further. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit who loved God his father with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength who Jesus who loved his neighbor as himself all the way to his death Jesus My friends, being in Christ and being in the kingdom of God are one in the same. May we all individually and as a church be be encouraged to hear the words, not only well done, good and faithful servant, 
but also words along these lines. You're not far away from the kingdom. You're not even close to the kingdom. You are in the kingdom. Welcome home. Let's pray. Almighty God, what can we say when we are confronted with this highest of all laws to love you with everything that we are and to love our neighbors, those close and those far, those we like and those we don't like, to the degree that we love ourselves. Oh, Father, you have set us up with an impossible task. And yet, Lord, it's for those who realize the impossibility of the task and for those who realize that we have fallen short of this call, this command. You have been pleased, Father, to provide what we so desperately need, forgiving grace and enabling grace. Indeed, Father, you have shown us our guilt. You have provided grace through Jesus Christ. Would you now enable us to live a life of gratitude in obedience to your commands for the rest of our life until we see with our eyes physically this great kingdom that Jesus is preparing for us. We pray in his name. Amen.